The reading of the Scriptures from Genesis chapter 14. I'll be reading verses 1 to 16. May God give us grace both in the reading and the hearing of His Word to do that in faith and with thanksgiving for the Word. So, Genesis chapter 16. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Jariot, king of Elasser, Kedileomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemember, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Kedileomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kedileomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated uh, the Rephaim and the Ashtaroth, uh, Karnaim, and Zuzim, and Ham, Amim, and Shaveh, Kiriath, Theim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. They turned back and came to En Meshpat, with, that is, uh, Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who were dwelling there in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Kedileomor, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elasser, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who escaped and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eschol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobath north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. And that's the word of the Lord. Thank uh, thanks be to God. Well, I invite you to join me in a time of uh, prayer. Oh, Father, again, we come to you in prayer and thanksgiving, praise and adoration. Great is our God and greatly to be praised. Thank, we are thankful for every good gift that comes to us from above, from the Father and the Son and the Spirit. We are thankful for your um, 
great care for us, O Father, uh, giving us our daily bread, all things needful for life and godliness. Uh, We have returned uh, a measure of that as offerings to you uh, that you would uh, bless all that we do and give for the advancement of the kingdom of heaven and the welfare of those in need. We do ask you to remember uh, those of our congregation who are ill, perhaps hospitalized, uh, bless the treatments they are receiving, that it may be well with their body as it is with their souls. We pray for uh, our children and grandchildren that we would see them walking in the truth and have great joy in doing that to that end, that we might uh, lead them well, always point them to the Savior and to the truth of the Scriptures. Uh, protect us uh, as uh, individuals, families, but certainly as a congregation from every danger in this fallen world, particularly the spiritual dangers, all the deception that abounds, um, all those who deny that Christ has come in the flesh and every blessing that comes to us because of the incarnation. Much deception, but uh, we are people of the truth, and may your spirit guide us in the truth. Uh, Beyond all these things, we come with various things that weigh upon the heart. Uh, May we cast those cares upon you, knowing that you care for us and that you will intervene in these circumstances in ways that are wise and good to secure our welfare and your glory. Now, Father, your word is firmly fixed forever in the heavens. Bless it to us this morning. May your word go forth in power, in the power of the Spirit. It will not return void. And open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. And bless Phil as he holds forth from this great text in Genesis. We ask all these things uh, because of the tender compassions of Jesus Christ for us and the fathers and the spirits. And so we close again worshiping Christ and asking these things in his name. Amen. Thy will be done. Lord, hear our prayers. So Abraham is... uh, confronted with another trial. It's a great lesson uh, for all of us. Uh, You know, we live in a fallen world, and uh, spiritual trials, sometimes physical and material trials, uh, seemingly uh, hang around us. Um, Sometimes uh, they come, as in the case of uh, Abram, with uh, repetitive force, And uh, that's exactly what occurs this morning. He is found in another trial. Uh, It's also good to remind ourselves that regardless of the perceptions of the trials that confront us, we live in a fallen world, and spiritual danger is always about us. And uh, it's good to uh, know that uh, God mounts uh, through Abram a dramatic uh, rescue And of course, in God's grace, He rescues uh, all of us through Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. In the first 12 verses, uh, Abram encounters a trial in the capture of Lot uh, with the challenge of family honor. Uh, Historic setting is a little bit complex, but it's a political crisis um, that results in a war. Uh, in especially an important attempt, and that is uh, some kings attempt to throw off uh, 12 years of dominion and tribute. So a political and clash of warfare ensues. 
four kings of the Mesopotamian region, uh, which is modern-day Iran, Iraq, and Turkey, unite to fight a coalition of five kings in the city-states of the Transjordan. It's one of the reasons I had us uh, read for our uh, call to worship this morning. Uh, majestic text, the kings unite to throw off the dominion of God in his son. Particular reference is to King David, but the greater and ultimate reference is to the greater King David, uh, which is our Savior, Jesus Christ. And of course, uh, the enemies of God will always be defeated, won't they? That's what uh, David teaches us in the Psalter, and it's about what's going to occur here in our text this morning. So the four kings invade the Dead Sea area and southwest, and verse 5, they prevail. Uh, it's interesting that the New American Standard uh, has that uh, uh, they were defeated, uh, but the literary re rendering of the Hebrew text is really much more graphic. Uh, they strike a blow. Uh, so uh, a blow is delivered uh, that is... Uh, to their defeat. Uh, and they continue the campaign until the five kings meet them, uh, arrange themselves more literally in the Hebrew Bible uh, in battle. Uh, the valley where they meet was full of tar pits and uh, five kings flee and retreat and panic. And very interesting, some of them fall into the uh, tar pits. Uh, the survivors flee north to the hill country to hide in the mountains. Uh, it's a good, uh, certainly not a part of uh, the text, but it is a reminder to us how uh, terrain shapes uh, battlefields. Uh, soldiers, particularly the leaders of soldiers in times of warfare, must know the terrain that they're fighting on. And that is True for us. I'm not trying to deal allegorically with the text, but I think there's an application here because you and I know that the world is Satan's terrain. Uh, and conversely, we also know that God is sovereign, uh, but we need to know that we live on His ground. He is the God of this world. And so there's dangers about us all the time. And sometimes He's the source of trials. It's also interesting in terms of application that uh, there are four kings uh, against five, uh, so that is coalition warfare. If you study the history of warfare, that's the way America fights. We fight in coalitions. World War II, great coalitions. We didn't fight alone. By the way, you don't fight alone either because Christ has promised always to be with you. Uh, and more importantly, there's also a coalition of His people in a place that you and I call the church. Uh, one of the great uh, dangers, I think, of uh, uh, satanic warfare, he uh, attacks, and sometimes we think, well, I'm alone. I'm the only one that's ever gone through this before, and I'll never make it out. No, we don't fight alone. Lo, I am with you always, Jesus says, and in the church there is a coalition. It's a very interesting coalition, is it not? Christ is perfect majestically perfect. And the church is imperfect. 
God surrounds us with imperfect people to worship the perfect. And that's our coalition. In this battle, the four Mesopotamian kings plunder the property of the five. The real point of the text is they take captive Lot. You and I know him as the nephew of uh, Abram. Chapter 14, verse 12, And they also took Lot, Abram's nephew, in his possessions and departed. And then there's a very tragic sentence, pardon me, phrase. Look at the text, chapter 14, verse 12, For he was living in Sodom. Lot is living in spiritual danger. Remind you of uh, last week's text, uh, chapter 13, verses 11 and 12, and Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward, and thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Uh, the catch of verse 13 is the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinners against the Lord. It's very interesting to me that the Hebrew Bible has the word wicked in the plural. And the adverb varies at the end of the sentence, placing great stress upon it. Uh, it's also a figure of speech in which two words are used for one to intensify that these guys were uh, wicked sinners utterly corrupt as sinners. In fact, I might add corrupt to the core. And Lot has now moved in with him. I made a point, uh, God's grace last week, to describe to you that sometimes uh, there's a progression in life. And Lot has taken an exceedingly bad progression. The text reads in chapter 13, he moved east. It's a reminder to us in uh, the Hebrew Bible that east is away from the Lord. I mentioned last week that Adam and Eve were driven east of the garden. Cain moved east, away from God. He pitches his tents as far as Sodom. Spatially, he's on the border of the city. And now he's moved in. Sometimes... uh, Sin is a journey of many, many false steps. More often than not, at some point, it's going to take up uh, momentum and things get worse. And I think, again, uh, for a lot, I would say living on the edge is not wise. Be very careful. Uh, This is Satan's world, but there are some places that are much more wicked than others. And for his folly, Lot is taken captive. But God in his grace has an honorable man, doesn't he? He has a man of faith named Abram. And he's emboldened. We've watched him, particularly when he moved down to Egypt, he was terrified of Pharaoh. He was scared to death. 
And so he comes up with a trick and deception. But over the time, God has come to him on special occasion and given him great and wonderful promises. Now he's emboldened to go rescue Lot, his nephew. We know here from the text, he's living by the Oaks of Mamre, where he had previously built an altar to the worship of the one true God. Uh, oftentimes, this, this phrase, Oaks, uh, is uh, a reference to uh, a place of idolatry, where the wicked gather to worship uh, uh, their gods uh, at the expense of the worship that's due only to the one true God. Abram takes it over and builds an altar there to worship God. Uh, he's informed that Lot has now become a prisoner. Uh, so, what's Abram to do? Uh, appreciate the message, but that's Lot's fault. He got himself in a pickle, and he just have to figure out how to get himself out of the pickle. It's not my fault. I wasn't there. Maybe Abram had kind of warned him. There was some, uh, as you know, spat about uh, pasture land for their livestock. Abram, incredibly gracious. Lot, you get first choice. His response is very unique. Instead of pointing fingers and saying, well, he, he got himself into it, suck it up, lot, you'll make it somehow. No, he forms his own coalition. Along with two brothers, he musters, this is very interesting, the text is very specific, 318 men. Think of 318 men going up against kings, a coalition of kings. The Bible uh, reads 318 trained men. It's very interesting. The standard Hebrew lexicon has something of a phrase that I think is very, very unique that stood out to me. Tried and trusty men. To help him. He's got his own coalition. He's going to rescue his nephew. And I remind you again, Abram doesn't go alone. He has not a whit of a chance against such a coalition. So he doesn't go alone. But he picks trained and worthy men that are trustworthy. Again, not allegory, but think of it in this way, the church. We gather to hear the scriptures. We gather for one single purpose to the worship of God. It binds us together. It's the focus of our lives. Because, like Abram, we know that we cannot fight alone. And you want others, coalition with you, that are loyal to the cause. In our case, uh, the cause of the worship of the one true God. Something of a historic illustration that perhaps might illuminate this. Uh, one of the great generals of the Second World War uh, was uh, George Marshall. Uh, he never was on the battlefield. He was back as an advisor, and uh, perhaps we might use the terminology chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, even though that wouldn't be the name uh, at that particular time. He also became Secretary of State, right? We've all heard of the Marshall Plan. Uh, perhaps saving Europe. 
from the despotism of communism. Incredible accomplishments. When Marshall was a younger man stationed at Fort Benning, uh, where he was a trainer, he kept a little black book. In that book, he wrote the names of men that he wanted to keep his eye on because he knew in the training uh, camps and the schoolhouse of the army that these men would someday be trustworthy and trained. And that little black book led him to the appointment of many of the great combat generals of the Second World War in Europe. Well, you and I have a little black book, do we not? The Bible, where we learn about the great heroes of the Scripture. And we also learn about their failures and their mistakes, just like we learn about our own. The Bible and the men and women that are committed to it is the Word of God. And Abram's coalition pursues the kings as far as Dan, which is, again, geographically southwest of Damascus. So way on the northern border, really beyond the border of Israel. So he's, he's done what? Moving south to north, he's traversed the promised land that God promised him. And I think the courage that failed him in Egypt is recovered uh, based on God's promises to him. Chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. Chapter 13, uh, verses 15 and 16. What does the Word of God do? It recovers us. It teaches us. It reminds us. And it's full of promises. We know what Abram's promises are, but there are promises to us as well. And it's to embolden our confidence in Him because it's the Word of the Lord. And confidence in the Lord enables one to stay in the fight. It certainly enabled Abram to stay in the fight and to go mount a rescue operation to recover his nephew. Remind you again of the odds. Three families against the residual forces of four kings. We know because of the promises of God that somehow, if we didn't even know the end of it, we would know, well, God promised Abram to bless those who blessed him and curse those who cursed him. We watched it already in Egypt. So, Abram has been studying his little black book, metaphorically speaking. He has new courage from the Scriptures. He doesn't retreat from them. Uh, it's interesting to me as uh, a one-time tactician and strategist, Abram does something that you need to be very careful of on the battlefield. He divides his forces. That's a very bold move because it's if you divide your forces, it's all the... Uh, easier for uh, your enemy to piecemeal you and defeat. Even more so, he conducts a night attack to achieve surprise. Uh, so he's going with some uh, tactical acumen uh, to rescue his nephew. The pursuit takes him north to Damascus. 
and Lot is recovered. A wise man rescuing the foolish man. And what do we know sublimely from the text? The real victor is God. Because behind uh, his son is the God who has made Abram his son, who has called him, brought him to himself. So this seemingly is uh, an incredible uh, tactical victory, the ancient Near East. But you and I, again, sublimely in the text, know that behind the man is the God of the man who is engineering it all. The promises of God have emboldened him, renewed his confidence. And confidence is key to staying in the fight. And I think that's exactly what uh, we learn here from the text and from the example of Abram. God is the real victor and he delivers on his promises. I know that you are aware of many of the promises of the scripture. And you know they're true because they come from God, because they are a part of His Word. And in some manner or form, God's going to deliver. Because that is what God is for us, the great deliverer. Turn with me, if you would, Psalter to Psalm 71. Verse 5. For thou art my hope, O Lord God. Thou art my confidence from my youth. We know from this text, and really not going to retreat too much to it, that it's a man writing. He's been through all the vagaries of life. And in all of them, his confidence in God and all of his promises have enabled him to be faithful. Thou art my confidence from my youth. Another reminder in Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 26. Testimony of a wise man. For the Lord will be your confidence. The man in Psalm says, my confidence. He owns, he owns it because of God. Here, now he's uh, your confidence. So, we have the follow along parallel line and we'll keep your foot from being caught. God's promises breed confidence. Confidence of the Lord enable us to stay in the fight. Abram doesn't retreat. He doesn't play blame. He just simply goes and does his familiar duty to rescue his nephew. Been reading a wonderful little devotional book uh, provided as a gift. Not the great heroes of American history 
uh, one of which certainly is George Washington. The French and Indian Wars, he was obviously on the side of the British, and uh, there was this terrible battle, uh, particularly uh, with the Indians. And uh, during the battle, um, at the end of it, Washington counted four bullet holes in his coat, and he had two horses shot out from under him. And he knew that God had protected him. He proclaims as much that the providence of God has rescued me. One of the Indian kings in the battle said, I fired 13 shots at Washington. And they all seemed to miss. He told his warriors, fire at that man. Everyone was shooting at him. Well, as you know, I don't believe in luck. I don't believe in chance. God had some future mission for George Washington. And despite the ferocity of a battle, kept him for his own ends. I know you're going to confront difficult times in life. Sometimes they increase in intensity, but you're not alone. God has his promises. God does not retreat from us. And so we shouldn't retreat from the battle. And confidence in the Lord enables us to stay in the fight, be faithful to him. And do our duty, whatever they might be, certainly chiefly to be loyal and faithful to him to the end. The old man of the Psalter looks back and says, you are my confidence, Lord. I've seen it. I know it. Of course, the greater reminder of this text is Christ has delivered us for spiritual warfare in our fallen world and gives us the victory. Now, Christ is our victor, capital V. He wins battles for us. He maneuvers circumstances to protect his sons. I'm not saying that materially and physically speaking that uh, Christians don't die in battle, certainly they do, but uh, the point is in the spiritual warfare that is much more intense than this uh, tactical, physical battle, uh, we must have someone on our side. And we do. Christ the victor. And his coalition of the church. I've reminded you time and again that oftentimes uh, watch people begin to drift. And it's kind of like Lot who drifts east, moves near the city, then finally moves in. Be very careful, by the way, of drift. Uh, for whatever reason, they get frustrated. I don't know why God did this to me. I'll show him. Uh, he is our victor. And we must hold him fast. He has bound the devil to prevent him from deceiving us. Very interesting, uh, if you look at uh, Revelation chapter 20, uh, first couple of verses, and I saw an angel coming down from heaven having the key of the abyss 
and great chains in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. That's figurative language, but verse 3 says, to prevent what? The nations from being deceived. Spiritual deception. Violent spiritual deception. How come you and I aren't caught up in spiritual deception? Because God in His grace is limited and even more so prevented totally the forces of darkness from deceiving us. Had He not done that, none of us would be in church this morning to worship the Lord Christ. That's how dramatic these forces are. I mean, if you're a student in culture, you know for certain we are in grave spiritual danger. What, by chance? No. The forces of evil are always at work. But God in His grace has restrained Satan from deceiving His church. The language here is takes a chain and binds him. Turn with me, if you would, to Daniel chapter 8, verse 25. It's a great marker here of deception that I happen to believe, as you may or may not know, that's very, very present, even in the church today, sad to say. The reference in Daniel chapter 8, verse 25, is of Antiochus Epiphanes. He's a civil governor. He's in Israel and he wants to deceive the people of Israel, namely the covenant people of Israel, if you will, God's people. Notice, notice how Daniel describes uh, his skill. And through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. And he will magnify himself in his heart and he will destroy many while they are at ease. Notice the phrase, while they are at ease. We can't be at ease because we're in a spiritual battle. But God in His grace prevents. He will even oppose the prince of princes, but He will be broken without human agency. God's going to take Him down. And of course, Antiochus was taken down. A beautiful phrase that's kind of chilling, is it not at ease? Don't be at ease in your pursuit of the things of God. Don't break your coalition. Be very careful of retreat. In terms of the language of Genesis, don't move east away from God. Keep drawing closer, holding fast. And the more you read His promises, you gain confidence in Him and stay in the fight. Stay faithful. Unlike Lot, we move to the church for our strength is in the might of God, Paul tells us in the book of Ephesians. One of the, one of the ways that we are able to survive in this uh, world of evil, great promise of God from the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 10 and verse 4, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely inspired for the destruction of fortresses. Well, what can I do, little old me? I always have these problems, and 
No, Paul says, you know the Scriptures. You have weapons of your warfare that are divinely inspired by God to destroy the fortresses of this world, spiritually speaking. Paul tells us, uh, turn the New Testament to the book of Ephesians. Uh, this is a dangerous world. There are uh, trials always coming at us just like they come at uh, Abram. Uh, Ephesians uh, chapter 6, as you know, uh, he tells us to armor up. Why? Because we're in a great battle, spiritual battle. Notice verse 11 and 12. Well, let's read verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. Not your might. His might. Trusting Him. Having confidence in Him to stay in the fight. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in, a, in heavenly places. Uh, now is not the time to be at ease, to be in retreat, not to have a coalition of uh, people that you're confident in, that you can uh, ask to pray for you or to help you in spiritual issues. It's exactly what Abram does. He doesn't go fight alone. He's got two other families with him. But behind him is the strength of the might of God. And you and I know from other verses, Satan is about us as a roaring lion, always looking for weak spots, always attacking sometimes when, uh, of course, uh, uh, we perhaps uh, may be weak in some manner or form. But unlike Lot, we must stay in the fight. I've often wondered about Lot. And I understand you want to pick the best for yourself, but is that really wise? Uh, I mean, certainly his uncle would be, was being incredibly gracious to him, giving him first choice for his flocks. I just kind of wonder about that. I don't want to allegorize the text, but what uh, takes the best for himself? A creed of the Navy SEALs is, I'm never out of the fight. Well, you and I aren't Navy SEALs to be sure. But we are in a terrific spiritual battle. We can't get out of it. Must stay in it. Trust the Lord. Know the promises of God. Have our confidence in Him. And that enables us to stay in the fight. Their unofficial creed is, my easiest day was yesterday. They expected to get tough. In a sense, Paul is telling us in Ephesians 6 to expect the same. But unlike Lot, our confidence is in the promises of our protector, The theology of the shepherd king of Israel, David, Psalm 23. 
Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. It promises him the victory in the following verse. That is, prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Just anointed my head with oil, my cup overflows. I love the following text, verse 6. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me some of the days of my life? No. All of the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. When you have the Lord Christ as your shepherd, that's your promise to embolden you to stay in the fight. I love the two words, goodness and mercy, literally loving kindness. The attributes of God will follow me all the days of my life. They're in front of him as his vanguard and behind him as his rear guard, taking him to the end. David essentially is giving us a lesson in theology of how important the attributes of God are. If you don't understand who God is, you are not going to be confident in any fight. And you're liable to break and, the Lord forbid, move east. Remember that text throughout all the vagaries of life. Goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. There's another illustration of this that I find profoundly beautiful. If you turn in uh, the Old Testament to Isaiah chapter 54. Uh, we know the second part of Isaiah's uh, book of uh, Consolation. Uh, the nation's going to be taken away in captivity. Uh, fall of Jerusalem. Ensuing captivity is a reminder that idolatry has consequences. Uh, second part of uh, Isaiah, uh, God promises restoration. Well, that's well and good for someone who's Who's, uh, who's doing well, but uh, Babylon captivity was a very difficult time. How can God deliver us from the most powerful nation on the face of the earth? Well, can he? He promises to do so. And the prophet Isaiah tells of a time when the city will be full again and safe forever. Really? Jerusalem was in ruins. Empty. God says, I'm going to make it full, be safe forever. Important point of the text to me in verse 5 is that God is the promisor. For your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. And that's why he can make such incredible promises, because he's totally sovereign and can reverse the worst of consequences and fix every wrong because he's God of all the earth. But notice, notice in verses 13 to 17 what he promises them. 
First in verse 13, in righteousness you'll be established. Verse 13, and all your sons will be taught of the Lord. Taught of God. You know, our Savior alludes to this text in John chapter 6, verse 44 and 45. No man can come unto me except the Father has sent me. Draw him. For the Scripture says, and they shall all be taught of God. The great majesty of our redemption, God becomes our teacher. I know we have, we have teaching elders and teachers in the, in the church, but how do we learn? Because we're taught of God. He uses His Word to teach us majestically to be confident in Him. All, all of His sons are taught of God. So the point of our Lord's allusion to uh, this verse in Isaiah is that the greater eschatological reality has begun fulfillment in Jesus. It occurred in a measure in the recovery of the nation from the captivity, but the greater reality is the presence of King Messiah gathering His people in His death and resurrection, and then dispatching His Spirit to gather them, to teach them, to illumine the Scriptures to them, that they might be confident of God irrespective of the vagaries of life. If he was not our teacher, we would not learn. Second, uh, Isaiah chapter 54, verse 13. Well-being of your sons will be great. He makes them whole. He makes us whole. Thirdly, He will establish us in righteousness and fix every failure and cure every fault. In righteousness, you will be established. God does that for us in Jesus Christ. Recall not too long ago, going through the book of Romans, God in His grace imputes the righteousness of His Son to our account. As the basis, entire basis of our sonship as the entire basis of our ability to commune with Him. The righteousness of another, of His Son, charged to our account. You will be far from oppression, for you will not fear, and from terror, for it will not come near you. Now it begins to intensify the promise of God to nation Israel that ultimately breaks upon us. Fourth, verses 14b to 17. You'll be far from oppression. If anyone fiercely assails you, it will not be from me. Whoever assails you will fall before you. Behold, I of myself have created the smith who blows the fires of coals and brings out a weapon for its work. And I have created the destroyer to ruin. No weapon that is formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue that accuses you in judgment will be condemned. For this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication is from me, declares the Lord God. Every threat against us will not prosper. 
because God is neutralizing them in His sovereign grace. He makes them ineffective. The entire array of the forces of evil are against us uh, attempting to work our spiritual ruin. He neutralizes them all. In His grace, brings us to His Son. In His grace, places us in an imperfect coalition called the church that we might be strengthened in all of the strength of His might. It's our heritage now and forever. I mean, this promise of Isaiah 54 is so grand and majestic. Eschatological fulfillment in the Son of God, Christ our Redeemer. It started, it's begun in our hearts, and will reach a terminal point in eternity. David says as much, does he not? And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The hymnus uh, says it all. In Christ, safe and secure from all alarm. God gives us promises. The hymnus gives us a promise. Trials come and go. We have a protector. His name is Christ. We should draw near to Him worship and serve Him and be in His coalition, the church, to be strengthened by the Lord for all the vagaries of life, to grow in our confidence in Him and to stay in the fight. May God be gracious to us in these ends as He will be because of His Son.